I looked this morning on, on BBC, on the app, just this one liner about 80 people dying yesterday in Aleppo. I remember a time when 80 people dying would have been on every news channel, and now it's just one line at the back. So I think we live in a time when the nations are in desperate need of healing. But we also need to tie that tree to Isaiah 61, where it says that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on us, and we become like oaks of righteousness. So we see two examples of the oak. And I believe that picture of the oak in Revelation is both the gospel, but it's also us drawing from the river of God. And our words, our actions, our deeds, our fragrance are those leaves that the world desperately needs. And I talked about this last time in Romans 8. It says that all creation, all of creation, all the nations, wait in eager expectation for the children of God to recognize their sonship. Joel said, you have to forgive me, Bob, I can't remember, it's chapter 2, 3, or 4. <laughs> but Joel definitely said it. In the last days, God was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And our sons and daughters will prophesy. So we're all sons and daughters. And so we see these two things that all the nations are groaning in eager expectation for the children of God to recognize who they are and the authority that they carry. But we also see Joel saying, in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit. And how many of us agree that we've seen that? At the beginning of the last century, the Welsh revival, the Azusa revival, a hundred years or more of this continual outpouring of the Spirit. But how many of us believe that the body of Christ around the world recognizes its sonship? Do we truly know who we are in Him? Do we know who we mean to Him? Do we know the authority we carry? Do we have that real sense of identity and authority so deep in our DNA that wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can bring healing to the nations. I would argue that the body of Christ has very little, very little understanding of who they are. And that, that worries me. That really worries me. I was speaking to, I can't name him because of what he said, but a guy that leads one of the major Christian conference festivals... And he said to me, you know what, Neil? I'm fed up of my own conference. I thought, well, I won't be buying a ticket then. <laughs> I know Roger will be there. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean by that? He said, we as a generation are so full of teaching. We are so full of the presence of God. He said, but now is the time for action. Yeah. And then he hung up. He said, I've got to go. And I was like, you can't leave me there. And I've been pondering on that for over a week. It's time for action. And I believe that's the Spirit's message 
over the body of Christ in this nation in particular that it's time for action. It's time for us to appropriate who we are, the authority we carry, and go and be good news to a really hurting and desperate world. I mean, what on earth has happened in France? This systematic attack on, on the closest nation to us. Think what's happened in, um, I was going to say Egypt, but it's, it's Turkey. It's just, church, the Holy Spirit is saying it's time to arise. Arise and shine, for your light has come. For the glory of the Lord is on us. It is time for action. Was that okay for me to say that? I always worry sometimes that I have this, not split personality, although I'm, <laughs> I'm sure Gwyn would think that of me in, in our home groups. I see the way she looks at me. She smiles at me and then she scowls at me in equal measure. <laughs> My mum. But I'm apostolic and I'm prophetic. And I know when I speak as a prophet, I worry that I come over really hard <laughs> and judging. Um, so hopefully that was all right. But now I'm going to speak more from the friendly, warm, cuddly meal. <laughs> don't you believe it? I don't do, I don't do cuddly. <laughs> no, yeah. You're working on me. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 11. Uh, verses 1 to 4, which is the abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. I'm all for efficiency, so we can remove some of the words and still get all the benefit. That's right for me. But let's put it into context. We know at this point that Jesus has been going through Israel and he's been announcing the kingdom of God. And he's been demonstrating the kingdom of God. And he's been meeting every need of the people that he comes across. He's been doing some amazing stuff. And then he sort of gets to this interlude and he sends out the 12. And they go out and they come back rejoicing, don't they? Oh my goodness, Lord. We've done the same kind of things you've done. We've raised the dead and we've healed the sick and everything else. And Jesus is like, okay, steady lads. <laughs> Steady lads, you're on the path. And then he sends out the 72 a little bit later, and they go out and have equally the same experience. And they come back, and then there's this kind of famous interlude when I think it's James and John suddenly announced to Jesus, Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy this village? And Jesus is like looking at them, going, Okay, you've got this authority thing down, okay but you're missing probably the identity thing. God is not here to send down fire and, and destroy places. And the disciples are beginning to grow in their understanding of authority. They see Jesus and the authority that he moves in, and they understand that seems to flow from his prayer life. When they're like putting the barbecue on and getting out the beers, getting the cricket bat out, as all good followers of Jesus do, Jesus goes off and prays. And I think the disciples, after a little while, the penny drops. Jesus prays, and then he moves in this incredible power 
Is this part of his authority? So the disciples are beginning to grow in their understanding of authority and the authority that they carry, but I think they had very little concept of their identities as believers. And in this short passage, Jesus begins to unveil to them who they are in God, uh, who they mean to God, and from that place, how to move in authority. And it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Probably the most famous words in the history of the world, arguably, said by more people in more occasions probably than, than anything else, apart from husbands saying, yes, dear. <laughs> or as Bob says, no, dear. <laughs> so I think there are, there are seven things here we can look at uh, that will help us understand our identity and our authority in Christ. So the first thing Jesus told us was our Father. We have a Father in heaven who's absolutely nuts about us. That is about as theologically profound as I can get. He is absolutely nuts about us. He loves us with a love that is so all-encompassing and so profound, it just scares the fear out of us. And it sets us on a path to be who God wants us to be. But God is not like an earthly father who's limited, who loses his temper, who tries to do the best he has with the little he has and often gets it wrong, if you're like me as a father. But fathers nurture us and they protect us and they provide for us and they give us our identity. And we need to understand that we have a father that is 100% for us and not in the slightest bit against us. There's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore, and there's certainly nothing we can do to make God love us any less. He won't harm us. He won't hurt us. He is for us and not against us. He created us in our mother's womb. And he declares over us fearfully and wonderfully made. He declares over us, you are perfect. Can you hear his voice, Bob? You are perfect. We have a father in heaven. We are not alone. We don't have to do this thing called life on our own. We don't have to look at what's happening in the nations today and be scared. We don't have to fear, how will we cope? How will this affect our finances? Because we have a Father in heaven, whether we can see it or not, is permanently holding our hands and saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
I am with you till the end of the age. If you get nothing else out of today, that was worth the price of your offering. Hallowed be your name. We have a Father that loves us, and everything we need is found in Him. It's a very old-fashioned word, isn't it, hallowed? But its origins come from the word holy. And the word holy has, is derived from the word whole, to make whole. And that really has two meanings. Number one, wholeness in the sense that we can come to this Father as we are, broken, hurting, and he makes us whole. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is to bind up the brokenhearted. And secondly, completeness, the sense of whole, that everything we need is found in him. In the Old Testament, there are 12 uh, Jehovah names for God, each one describing a level of attributes of how he engages with his people. And we understand, and uh, you know, I know not too much about these kind of things, but the number 12 stands for perfection. So we see that God, in all his fullness, is complete and perfect for our every need. El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient for the needs of his people. Elohim, in the beginning was Elohim. And Elohim created everything out of nothing. What do you need today? What's going on in your life? Do you need a miracle? Does it seem that it's dark and formless and nothing's going to happen in your life? You have a father that's sufficient for your every need. Elohim just needs to speak the word into your situation and it shall be. Jehovah Jireh. Anyone know what that means? The God who provides. But we understand the context of that. Moses and the gang are out in the desert. Suddenly they realize there's no McDonald's, there's no Starbucks, and there's no Asda's for miles. And they start moaning and complaining, you brought us out here to die. Moses turns to God and God says, I'm Jehovah Jireh. Suddenly bread you know, starts falling from heaven, and chickens, quails, not quite too sure what a quail is, small chicken, certainly went posh enough where I came from to eat, eat quail, but, but chickens, chicken sandwiches, you know, God will provide. Jehovah Nisi, the God who protects. I imagine it was pretty scary out in the desert. Jehovah Rafi, the God who heals. Jehovah Shalom, the God that gives peace. I think more than anything, we need to begin to arise and start walking around our city and our nation and the nations of Europe and proclaiming Jehovah Shalom. Do you know one of the greatest weapons that God has given us is proclamation, to de be declare out the word of God over cities and situations. Maybe we should do that. Go to some of these troubled places and speak out. But despite all of these 12 names of God, Jesus only called God by one name. Do we know what that was? Abba. And what does that mean? 
daddy, father, or better still, daddy. And even in Israel today, children up to about six or seven will call their dad Abba, daddy. And then Jesus says, your kingdom come. So we have a father that loves us, and everything we need is found in him, and his desire is to give us everything we need. God's desire is to see his wholeness, his completeness, his attributes be given to every person. He wants to see his completeness come to every street and every sphere and every nation on earth. Everything that he has, he wants us to be able to have. There is nothing that he won't do for you. There is nothing that he won't give you. There is no problem that he won't solve for you. He longs to see heaven and its fullness come to earth. Is there poverty and sickness in heaven? So God doesn't want to see poverty and sickness on earth. Is there loneliness in heaven? Unemployment? Homelessness? I'm getting good at this, am I? <laughs> I could be a teacher. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is there depression in heaven? And God doesn't want there to be on earth. God wants, Jesus is crying out for us that we as his people would know that God's sole agenda is to see his kingdom come to earth. We don't have to beg him, we just have to align with it. Every situation that we face, our community faces, our nation faces, we should know that we have a father who's right behind us saying, I want my kingdom to come to this area. And we just become conduits like that tree. Oh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, declares the Lord, and everything will be added unto you. What does that mean? When we have a picture of the goodness of God and that his desire is to be good to us and that he, he wants to right every wrong on the earth, he wants to bring restoration, when we know that and we live from that place, everything we need will just flow abundantly into our lives and into the lives of others. And we know, don't we, church, that Jesus doesn't want to bless us so we can be fat and blessed. He wants us to be blessed so we can be a blessing unto others. And then Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. So we have a Father that loves us, that everything we need is found in Him, and His desire is to give it to us. But how do we begin to access that? How do we begin to grab a hold of the things of heaven and see them manifest in our life, in our street, in our workplace, in our kids' schools? How do, how do we do that? Well, Jesus said in Mark 11... Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. What does that actually mean? I think Jesus was saying, 
God has given you all of the faith you will ever need to do all things at all times and in all places. Too often we think it's Jesus saying, have faith in, in God, and then we feel it's all about us. Some preachers will say God has given everyone a measure of faith, and then we kind of worry, have I got enough? And I don't know about you, I kind of always stand on the side going, I probably haven't got enough. But I think what Jesus was actually saying here, God has given you all the faith you will ever need. So that as the Philippians learn, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. The Greek understanding of that is I can do all things at all times and in all places and situations. That feels like the ultimate thing, doesn't it? We can, therefore, we can come boldly to him and ask for everything we can need and desire and want. We can believe that he will do as he says, and then we align ourselves to receive. And this is the amazing thing. We can come to him as often as we like. doesn't matter how big or small our need is, we can fully put our trust in him. I don't know about you and your relationship with your father, but my, my father's Indian, and I can honestly say now that he's, he's my hero. I just think he's an amazing man, and uh, I kind of think if I can become half the man he is, I know I'll be twice the man that I am. I'm stunned by how he lives his life and, and what he's achieved. But I think he'd agree with me. He, he wasn't always <laughs> this shining guy with a halo and all the rest of it. When I was growing up, my dad was still very highly influenced as an Indian man. So he was, his parenting skills were reflective of his father's parenting skills. I don't know if there's any Indians in, in the room today, but you, you'll probably know what I mean. That back in that generation in particular, a father was very distant. Uh, had very little interaction with their kids. Uh, very authoritarian. A little bit scary. I remember my dad saying to him, even when he was at university, he would have to write or phone up his father to ask permission to go out and do stuff. You know, if he wanted to go to the cinema or anything like that. Um, he'd have to ask permission for that. And I think my dad reflected that to me. And so I grew up with this sense that uh, my dad's a little scary and probably I should avoid him as much as possible uh, without him knowing that I'm avoiding him. <laughs> and that... Uh, I probably shouldn't ask him for anything because I don't think he'd give it to me. And none of that was true. That's not who my dad was like. He was just, you know, he was doing the best with what he had and was given to him by his father. But when I became a Christian, I took all of that into my relationship with my heavenly father. I just assumed he was distant, that he was always sort of, you know, got one eye out on me to catch me doing something wrong. Any of you had a dad or a mum like that? 
<laughs> I learned sneaky stuff. <laughs> How to get away with stuff. It was funny, we just had a family reunion last week in Newcastle. And my dad fessed up. He said to me, he said, I'm really sorry, Neil. He said, he said I was convinced for months that you were stealing all my booze. Uh, you were taking this money and doing all this thing. But I discovered it was your sister. <laughs> I'm like looking at my sister. She's like, yeah, yeah. With utter pride, yeah, that was me and you got blamed. <laughs> Christmas card list, sister off. <laughs> but I, I put all of that on my Heavenly Father. And I wonder how many of us do that, despite the fact we know otherwise, and despite the fact we're surrounded by incredible examples of fathers. You know, I love watching Paul with his... Uh, kids. Just an incredible, incredible dad. I'm sure you're not like this all the time, but you appear to be. Just this endless patience and love and gentleness. Yeah. 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 I'll ask Esther. <laughs> and Jack, you know, I see him, you know, just carrying the weight of his children's lives, and, and Gwyn as well, and just wrestling before God for them. So, you know, no matter what we've gone through, we, we know and we're surrounded by incredible examples of fathers that we should know deep down that God's not like that. But we still do sometimes. And Jesus was saying here, no, you have a dad here that you can go to as often as you want about anything you want he will never say no. He delights to give you the desires of his heart. And what you don't know is he's working behind your back to bring incredible things into your life just so he can see the smile on your face when these things happen. And then Jesus says, forgive us our sins. So we have a father that loves us. Everything we need is found in him. He's desirous to give everything we need. And all we need to do is ask. Knowing that there is no cost, we don't have to do anything to earn it, and he wants nothing in return. There is always this question in the minds of us as believers. Am I, am I right with God? Can I enter into his presence and ask for stuff? Do you ever do that? When I was... Um, in YWAM many years ago, we were taught the first rule of intercession. Were you ever taught this, Jono? Get right with God. So I was taught wrongly that I was permanently, I was either right with God or wrong with God. And as a result of that, I never knew. I was like, I was just this split personality and what do I need to do and do I deserve all of this? And Jesus said, look, lads, and if you really want to know who you are as believers, you've got to stop this nonsense right now. And he said, forgive us our sins. But we need to understand we're on the other side of the cross than when Jesus said this. So really, our Bible should say, forgiven are your sins. And if we knew that we are forgiven once and for all, it's a done deal for eternity that Jesus took all the sin of the world on himself at the cross, 
And Galatians tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding our sin against anybody. We are forgiven. Forgiven are our sins. You are forgiven. You are in Christ right now, seated in heavenly places. You are holy and righteous. You can enter boldly into the throne room of grace, knowing that you belong. You have a season ticket. It cannot be revoked. There is no cost. There is no cost. You incur no debt. You owe God nothing. And he wants absolutely nothing from you, save one thing, that we would relate with him. Wow. And our receiving is not based on our goodness, but his. And there is nothing we need to do to earn his grace. The enemy would come and speak to you and say, you know what, you're not good enough. You're not right with God. The enemy knows what you did last week when you thought nobody was looking, and his voices will just bring condemnation. But the word of God is, you're forgiven. You're forgiven at the cross. You were forgiven when you became a believer, and you're permanently forgiven. But then Jesus says something here that he says, but we, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. There is nothing we need to do to receive all that God wants to give us. But I believe that there is one thing that we need to be aware of. There is one great universal law that comes up all the way through the Bible. As a man sows, so shall he reap. We see it uh, in Genesis. You know, God sows what is word and it comes back to him. We see it in Psalms. As a man thinks in his heart, as he sows his thoughts, so he becomes those. Um, We see it, Jesus talking about it in the Gospels. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. Another way of saying this is whatever you give, you'll get back. And normally, more of it. We've heard that, haven't we? Normally about money. We've all heard it, haven't we? Preacher says if you give, God's going to give you this back. Um, I won't go into my impression of an American evangelist. Um, Oh, I really want to do it. No, no, no. It wouldn't be appropriate. Oh, Neil, stop it. Move on. If you give love, you'll get loved in return. Have you seen that with kids? If you shout at them and you be cruel to them, they'll, they'll, they'll be the same to you. But if you love them unconditionally, they'll love you unconditionally. If you're generous to people, have you found that the world becomes generous back to you? But have you also found that if you're angry and upset and you put anger out in the world... Have you noticed that suddenly you seem to find other angry people? We even had language as that as kids. Birds of a feather flock together. Or am I just too old? I remember that. Anyone remember that? This sense that whatever you put out, you'll, you'll attract back. 
Have you ever spoken badly of people only to find that other people speak badly of you? So there's an element of forgiveness that's not often taught. Forgiveness is at its heart the letting go of negative emotion. So if Bob and I are out for a drink and Bob decides he's going to be cheeky to me and has a little bit of banter and I think, you've stepped over the line here. And I go home and I start festering on it and I start really getting angry. What happens when I eventually forgive him? I let go of all of that anger and emotion. So there is the sense that forgiveness is this, at its heart, there are two aspects of it. It's, it's, there's always a person, that person might be us or somebody else, and there's this sense that we're holding on to this negative emotion. And we need to recognize in, in the context of identity and authority in and about prayer and having our answers prayer, uh, answers uh, through our prayers, sorry, having our prayers answered, we need to be careful that when we really understand who we are, that we have this loving Father and that he's forgiven us and he wants to give us great things, and when we're holding that anger, that hurt, that resentment, that's actually what we're putting out and will come back to us. So if we're going to be the people that begin to appropriate all that God has for us, we need to be people that continually walk in forgiveness. Because we don't want to be sowing negativity. We want to be deliberate in that. And lastly, Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. What time did we start? We know that God doesn't tempt us. So who does? Sorry? The devil. And how does he tempt us? With our own desires? Doubt? Uh-huh. Lies? Yeah, lies is, is, is one of the main things. And in order to understand this, we need to appropriate what is called the law of uh, first mention. So where is temptation first mentioned in the Bible? Garden of Eden in Genesis. And we know that Eve was tempted by the devil, but what did he tempted her? As Gwyn said, he tempted her with a lie. And sadly, she believed it. But what was that lie? You're not good enough. God can't be trusted. He's holding out on you. You don't need God. You can have this life that God offers through your own works. You don't need to be dependent on God. You can have all of this for yourself. And she and Adam believed the lie and tried to get hold of the promises, the fullness of God, and work that out in their own life. And what was the first thing that happened to them when they tried to be like God? Suddenly realized they were naked. And how did that make them feel? Ashamed. And this is the thing, when we believe that somehow we have to work out these things ourselves, that our identity, our authority, 
the fullness of God's kingdom coming into our life, that we have to do something to get all of this. When we somehow believe that actually God's just, there's always this little something that we have to do to get hold of it, we start stepping into works. And works leads to law, and that only leads to one place, shame. And when we feel ashamed, we don't have anything really to take to the world. Amen? And then Jesus ends this with these two kind of stories about, you know, supposing, you know, you're and a visitor comes to your house and you need some bread, but you haven't got any. So you run to your friends and, and you knock on the door and he's like, nah, go away. I'm in bed, I've locked the doors, I can't be bothered to get up. And he says, but your persistence and your boldness, um, you'll get your prayers answered. Well, I think there's a couple of things Jesus wants us to know in this. And the first thing is God's not like that. God's not like that. Have we ever had a friend or somebody in our life where we've made ourselves vulnerable, we've asked for help, We've gone to them, we've opened up, and they've judged us, or they've looked down on us, or they haven't given us what we need, and as a result of that, we're less inclined to do it again. You know, how many of you ladies believe that us guys love to talk about our feelings? There's nothing we like better than sat there, glass of Prosecco, foot bath, just talking about our feelings? Is, is that, uh, I know Roger does that, isn't that right? I don't have to. <laughs> but if we've made ourselves vulnerable in the past, and as a result of and we've been and we've been judged, we close down even more. And Jesus is saying, God's not like that. He isn't. But we need to understand that there is sometimes a delay from what we ask for and to receiving it. Sometimes that delay is for our own benefit. Is it, I'm sure, I hope it's not just me, but I'm, I'm forever and famous for getting great ideas and rushing out at 100 miles an hour only to get halfway down the road and realize this wasn't such a good idea. And by that time, I've spent the household budget, I've committed us, I've done all this stuff. So sometimes there's a delay for our own benefit. Because God's looking at us going, look, I could give this to you, but I know you really don't need this or want this. So Jesus is saying, God's not like that. He will never judge you. He will never betray your vulnerableness. He will never criticize you. But sometimes there is a delay, number one, because... He wants us to realize this isn't the best prayer for us to be praying. Secondly, sometimes there's a prevailing prayer, as we understand from the book of Daniel. The angel came to him and said, your prayer was heard and answered on the first day. And there's this stuff that goes on. So Jesus ends this by saying, uh, where is it down here? He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and the door will be opened unto you. 